attempt something big. This has been a, a seminary motto in the last couple years. It's been a rallying cry for us. It's been a campaign to discover the best stories of what God has done through Asbury's community, both here within our students and through our alumni around the world. It's been a goal, a goal set we set our sights on to do things we could not do alone, but that only God could do through us. But it's not just a rallying cry, it's not just a campaign, it's not just a goal, it's a t-shirt. Uh, last year, the offer went up for, on social media for people to post a hashtag, attempt something big, and see if their actions merited a t-shirt sent to them. Um, that means for some of you, by the end of seminary, you will be able to say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, this is my attempt something big t-shirt. And, and you're wondering, how did I earn this shirt? I honestly have to tell you that I haven't worn it yet. Uh, last semester, uh, I was asked to sit down and do an interview for our communications team so that they could write up my story about what God has done in my life and how I ended up here at Asbury. And as a thank you, they sent me a t-shirt. And every time I see it in my drawer and I think about wearing it, I wonder, is talking about myself for an hour really an act de deserving of this epic t-shirt? I mean, what qualifies you for doing something big, for attempting it? Are we on a sliding scale here? Is there a runner's-up prize, a participation trophy? You tried something big, but it didn't work out. I think if anyone anyone could really wear this t-shirt, it would be Jesus. I mean, he, he did the truly big things. And next to that, can any of our acts ever really be called big? If you were to give Jesus a t-shirt, if you were to hashtag uh, some of the stories in the Gospels, how would you even pick? How would you choose which occasion merited the something big from us? I mean, feeding thousands, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. There's the one about 10 lepers, the raising of his buddy Lazarus after he's been dead several days. Don't even get me started about walking on top of water. I mean, we could just, we could go on and on. The gospel writers did go on and on. But I think I've got it. How about the one with the storm? I mean, that's something big. You remember that story. The storm, the boat, the wind and waves, the disciples freaking out while Jesus naps, his head resting gently on a cushion in the stern of the boat, while mature fishermen who have spent their lives on this water scream wildly like frightened children. I've always thought in that story that the first show of Jesus' power, before he actually calms the storm, was his calm, his ability to sleep when those around him were terrified. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, storm, shmorm, I can handle this in my sleep. I'm pretty sure that the ability to speak a storm into stillness with just the words peace, be still, qualifies you for attempting something big. There are certainly people right now, right this minute, in regions 
of our country, of our world, who are praying to a savior who calms storms, who are praying their own big prayers right now. And his disciples were certainly impressed in the end. Who is this, they said, with the word? He calms storms. Who is this? I mean, they've been with him, and they still have to wonder, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this who attempts big things? That storm was certainly something big. This just might be Jesus' t-shirt moment. His biggest attempt in his ministry on earth. Then again, maybe not. Sometime later, the same disciples who screamed and the same Jesus who slept have gathered on a Thursday night for dinner. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples and his band of friends, and the hour is growing late. And while everyone else wants to go to sleep, Jesus wants to pray. In the past, he's gone alone to pray, but this time, this time he calls three of them to come with him. Peter, James, and John, he says, come with me. And the three blush with pride as they grab their cloaks and make sure everyone else knows where they're headed. Sorry, we'll be out a bit late tonight, they say. Jesus wants us with him. Don't wait up, they say. We'll be praying with the Lord. They are thrilled at the power and privilege of being in Jesus's inner circle. I mean, these three have headed up a mountain with Jesus before. It was a transfiguring experience. So they're eager. They're eager to witness more of the glory, and they follow out of the city gates, down through the Kidron Valley, and up another mountain, this time the Mount of Olives, to a private garden called Gethsemane. This time, though, when they get there, there's no transfiguration, no glow, no appearance of dead heroes. I mean, as far as they can tell, there's no glory to witness this time. There's only a cool, dark garden. And Jesus instructing them to pray with him as he goes just a little ways away, within earshot probably, to, to pray himself. And up to this point, everything in their experience of Jesus has seen him totally in control of every situation, of his emotions, of himself. But here, in this calm garden, the cool, calm, and collected Jesus gives way and collapses on the ground, grieved to the point of death. Jesus, the same Jesus who was calm in the middle of an epic storm, is overwhelmed with sorrow in a calm garden. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, that famously tenacious female preacher, asks where the glory of God is seen clearly in Holy Week. It's not just on Friday, she says, in the suffering of the cross. It's not even only on Sunday in the Easter Christ of the resurrection. The clear picture of the glory of God cannot be fully seen unless we're paying attention to Thursday night. As she puts it, Christ on his knees, on the ground, weeping, abandoned, sweating blood, beseeching his father, preparing to meet sin and death, disarmed and unprotected, gathering himself for this, his climactic battle against your enemy and mine. And in all of this, in this unusual, the 
the only scene where we see Jesus fall to the ground like this. In all of this, where are our three disciples? Where is our fantastic inner circle? The ones who styled themselves as Jesus' entourage, Jesus' squad, his band of brothers. Where are the three who have been called to witness one of the most remarkable hours of human history? God weeping, sweating, struggling in a heap on the ground. Where are they, you ask? Well, they're asleep, of course. What can you even say about that? These disciples are cautioned by Jesus three different times, three separate times to stay awake, and yet we find them nodding off again and again. Now, I have to admit here, I I find it hard to point a finger too hard at them because I think of this story often. This story comes to me every time I sit down to pray for a length of time and found that it's turned into holy nap time. Naps can be holy too, you know that. But remember, these Three fishermen, these are the same ones who cried out in fear during the storm while Jesus slept peacefully in the boat. And now it's Jesus praying in anguish while they keep dozing off in the garden. So so what's the difference here? When do you stay awake? When do you go to sleep? Certainly, the storm on Galilee was a terrifying experience. It was worth crying out to the master of the wind and waves over. It must have been a doozy if experienced fishermen were sure they were going to die on the water that night. And there is no shame in shaking Jesus awake when he's right in the boat with you. And that's part of the gift of the incarnation, isn't it? The Lord of the universe in the same boat with humanity in their struggle. He's there for a reason, so we shouldn't be afraid to cry on his shoulder when we're scared. Never shame anyone for crying out in their storm. It is their storm, no matter what it looks like to you. Storms drive us to our knees. They make us realize our need for Jesus. Most of us found him in a storm of some kind. And when we find him, what we find is that he's not threatened at all by the things that threaten us. He's so calm that the things that rock our world can rock him to sleep. And we can find strength in that, in the knowledge that the creator of the universe is calm in the face of that universe's greatest threats to our well-being. But if Jesus can sleep through a terrible storm, what is he doing awake all night in a peaceful garden? I mean, Jesus has been predicting and announcing to his inner circle again and again that he will be arrested, tortured, and murdered, but will rise from the dead. The events of this roller coaster of a weekend do not surprise him. He's not shocked at the betrayal and the arrest that night that begin the launch sequence to his excruciating death. He cries out in the garden. He tells his friends that his soul is overwhelmed, that he's so sorrowful that it's killing him. And Jesus isn't one to be anxious. Remember, he's the one who tells us, be anxious for nothing. So why is he awake all night, greatly distressed and troubled? Maybe it's because Jesus knows something about where the true battle happens. It's not always in the noise in the winds, 
in the Category 5 conditions. The battle can be as quiet as a whisper. It can be as innocuous as kneeling in surrender. The inner battle that no one can see, that no one else knows, often predetermines the outcome of the outward battle that happens afterwards. Jesus speaks peace be still effortlessly to an external storm in just a moment, but the internal one, the one that only his closest friends witness, and not even them because they're power napping, the internal battle is fought all night or over years or over a lifetime, which is exactly how long it takes for most of us to say and mean those four dangerous words, thy will be done. I can't even tell you how many times I lose sleep over the things that Jesus has told me once and for all not to worry about, things that he already has under control. And then I doze off when he tells me to stay awake and attend to the dangers of my own soul. I'm pretty good at sleeping through the things God has called out as important cosmic battles and then crying over battles he already has under control. And so are the disciples. So why bring them? He could have prayed alone. Why take the disciples at all? Why did Jesus bring these three to the garden with him for prayer? I mean, somewhere in their minds, they believed he had chosen them for their strengths, that perhaps they were there to support and protect Jesus. Protect Jesus. I mean, Peter acts like he's Jesus' bodyguard. Some private secret service agent Nothing will happen to you as long as I'm here to take care of you, Jesus. Let me pull out my sword and react when you're restraining 12 legions of angels. So let's face it, the three aren't in the inner circle because they're the most gifted or reliable or strong or even awake. They are the ones who need the lesson of the garden the most. Remember James and John who begged to sit at his right hand and his left in glory? Assuming that to be in Jesus' inner circle meant power and comfort, something that the church still hasn't been broken of. When Jesus asked them if they are able to drink the cup that he drinks, they nod enthusiastically, a cup sounds great. A cup sounds like celebration, an honor, a party even. They are the ones who need more than anyone to hear Jesus kneel in agony and beg for this cup to be taken from him. The cup described in Isaiah 51 as the cup of God's wrath, the goblet that makes people stagger. Anybody order that cup when they signed up to follow Jesus? The cup of God's wrath. And Peter, bless his heart, Peter, just hours before, he had sworn that even if everyone else deserts Jesus, he will never leave him. And when Jesus tells him that before dawn, Peter will deny him three times, Peter announces that Jesus is wrong. That's some overconfidence for you, right? You're just, you're wrong, God. <laughs> and that he is actually ready to die at his side. You think Peter needed the garden that night? Peter, James, and John are not invited to the garden because of their strengths, but because of their weaknesses. 
because their glib overconfidence puts them at risk of falling because they are not watching their step. And their failure to understand that what it means to share in Jesus' destiny is to be identified with his sufferings rather than his privileged status, it's won them an invitation to the Garden of Agony where Jesus tries to tell them again and again, three times, stay awake, stay awake, wake up, as Jesus tries to prepare them for how unprepared they are for the cross and all that would follow. Jesus didn't bring them there because he needed their help. He brought them there because they needed his. Wake up and pray that you will not fall into temptation, he told them. Don't pray for my sake, Jesus says. Pray for yours. Keep watch, Jesus told them. Not for the soldiers that are going to march in so that we can either fight or run, but watch over your own souls. Watch your weaknesses. Watch your inadequacies. And watch me, Jesus says. Watch me as I go to battle in the dirt for you and overcome. They were there to join Jesus in his incredible night, in his biggest moment the hardest work of the soul before the hard work of the cross. Listen, if anybody is in Jesus' inner circle, it's got to be you, right? Here you are, announcing to the world that you will put your life on hold to train for ministry. You will shift your priorities, tighten your belts, give up all the things that went before to start out on a new track and pursue him. You attempted something big, when you signed up for Asbury Seminary. I mean, you've gotten a few syllabi this week, right? You are about to attempt something that is bigger than you. But it's easy to focus on the good and ignore the great. You can sleep through Gethsemane even here. And being in this, this circle is not about your gifts. It's not about your strengths. You're not here because God needs you. You're here because you need him. The three in the garden, the only wise choice that they make in this story and others is to choose to follow Jesus again and again. Whatever choices you're making, that's the one that will matter. And your friends and your family, they're going to say things like, isn't it nice? Enjoy your time at seminary, a little break from the real world. A few years in the ivory tower, with your nose in the books, just relax while you're in seminary. What they don't know is you signed up for Gethsemane. Where will your garden be? The classroom? The cafeteria? Your family circle, your friends? This chapel? That altar? This has been Gethsemane for a lot of people. Sins have been forgiven here. Temptations have been overcome. Body and blood eaten here. Callings have been changed from one thing to another in a breath of the Spirit. Where will your garden be? It's wherever you say the words, thy will be done. That is the start of every big thing that God ever undertakes, the submission of the human heart. How big is Gethsemane? What kind of big deal is it? William Lane puts it this way, just as rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over man, 
Submission in Gethsemane reversed that pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. Welcome to Gethsemane. My first ministry job, the first place that ever gave me a paycheck, actually, was a little church near Austin, Texas, that hired me to be their youth minister for 10 hours a week. Anybody ever met a ministry job that only took 10 hours a week? I was there for 10 hours every Sunday. Then there was the rest of the week to deal with. And, and it was while I was working at that church that I was invited to preach my first sermon. And I was terrified. I was 21 years old. I was only three years older than the oldest kid in the youth group. Ask me how that authority worked. And I still remember that first sermon. It was handwritten. It, the text was on the curtain of the temple being torn in two so that we could have intimacy with God. And I'm pretty sure that it was terrible. But the day I preached it, the highlight of that day that I stood in a pulpit for the first time was when my dad and my stepmother and my brother walked in the back door to hear me. They lived in the same town, and so they showed up to hear me preach. And to say that they were not church-going people was an understatement. My father and stepmother hadn't been in a church since childhood, and my brother, who was a child himself, had never been to a worship service. So when I saw them walk in that door, I almost fell apart. I was so grateful that God was showing me a tiny crack in the armor of my family that I had prayed and prayed for. Anybody have somebody in your family that you pray and pray for a crack in their armor? And on Monday morning, the day after the sermon, I was still in grateful disbelief that this momentous turn in my family's spiritual life had actually happened. And when I showed up on Monday for staff meeting at the church, after my 10 hours on Sunday, uh, the pastor caught me in the hall. I saw your family was in church yesterday, he said, and I was still in such grateful disbelief that I just started talking. I let it all spill out, the years of praying for my dad, how he and my stepmom had both been distant from the church since childhood, and now how I desperately wanted my own brother to have a, a family of faith to grow up in, a place to come to know Jesus how all the hopes and prayers had just, they had almost come together in seeing them walk in the door of the sanctuary that day. It was a much bigger deal than preaching my first sermon. And when I finally took a breath in my excited story, he responded blandly. So when do you think they'll be ready to join the church? And that, it floored me. I mean, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. I, I knew what that meant. I mean, I had seen in his ministry the pursuit of people to join the church, but not the pursuit of their souls. Membership was the ultimate goal of ministry in that place. Because membership meant numbers. And, and numbers meant success. That was the big thing in the eyes of the hires up. And so that pastor thought he was thinking big in that moment. He was thinking of growing a church. He was thinking of growing a budget. Maybe he was thinking big enough to think years down the road when his success there would mean he'd be moved to a bigger church and a bigger one. I mean, he was thinking big probably for years. 
when do you think they'll be ready to join the church? That's what he wanted to know. He, he was counting them already. He was thinking so big that he missed it. He missed it altogether. And so, I never forgot that day. Every ministry position I ever held since, when people walked in the door, I began to wonder who was praying for them. Then maybe there was family, maybe friends in another city who had been on their knees for years. Maybe that was someone's father, brother, sister, friend. Some believer somewhere was praying for their salvation and for their souls, and it, it can be hard to share Christ with your own family. It works sometimes, but often you pray like crazy for years for someone else to show up in their life, to notice them, to see them, to share Christ with them. I prayed that all those years for my family. And so every time I've stood in a church, every person that walks in, I begin to wonder, is someone praying for me to see them? Is someone praying for me that I will see them as more than a number? Listen, one soul is something big. Don't be so focused on the ambition of ministry that you forget what Wesley said. You have nothing to do but save souls. Gethsemane actually means olive press. This is a, a garden still full of olive trees. And when olives are pressed, they surrender the most valuable substance that they have to offer, their oil. We think of olive oil for cooking, but um, it's also a staple around the world and has been for the healing of wounds. That oil has been a healing balm for as far back as people knew what an olive tree was, but it only comes out when the olive is pressed, almost crushed. There are things in your life that will only be released in seasons where you are pressed. When Dr. Luke tells the story of Gethsemane, he, he tells us that under pressure, Jesus' sweat became as great drops of blood that fell in the garden. And, and I don't really know what that looked like, but the mention of blood here is not accidental. As if to say, the first blood of the cross didn't fall on Golgotha. It was spilled in prayer on the ground of Gethsemane, the olive press, the place of surrender, the place where those iconic words were spoken, not my will, but yours be done. And at that end of the night in the garden, Peter went rogue, got himself mixed up with secret service again, pulled a sword, and tried to start fighting the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, he had no idea that there was no reason to go to battle. It was already over. The something big had already happened before those soldiers ever showed up, and Jesus walked calmly from the place of agony. The something big happened on the ground in prayer. You'll come to this chapel and other places on campus again and again. Daily, we have the sacrament of communion served to us. And we say these words when we lift the bread. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, don't miss what night that was. Not Friday, Thursday. On the night in which he gave himself up for us wasn't the cross. It was the garden 
He gave himself up before they ever took him to the cross. So what is it? What is something big? You're going to graduate from here someday, God willing, with a lot more books than you own today. Prayerfully, a lot more knowledge, hopefully a diploma, maybe even a t-shirt. And you are going to go and do a lot of big things. I mean, the stories, the stories of the Asbury brothers and sisters around the world, the things that they're doing, the miracles that they're witnessing, they are amazing. When Dr. Tennant told you the story on Tuesday at convocation of how Henry Clay Morrison founded the seminary in 1923 with the theme, the whole Bible for the whole world, he didn't mention how audacious a motto that was because in 1923, the first class only had three students in it. The whole world, really? Three people? But he wasn't attempting to reach three people. He was thinking about you. They were attempting something big in 1923 that has stood the test of time and stood on the rock of God's word for nearly a hundred years now. He was attempting something big, and now there's you. There are thousands of us around the world. God's something big doesn't, doesn't start with a headline. It begins with the human heart. The power of this place is thousands of surrenders in this room. Thousands of thy wills, thy will be done. Where will you add yours? What will he do when you say those words? Something big begins in your soul with your prayer, your belovedness, your worship, your ordinary moments. Next Tuesday, we've decided to de- dedicate a whole, cha- a whole chapel to prayer. In my memory, we haven't done this right at the beginning of the year. Let's take all of Tuesday, 11 o'clock in this room, and just pray for the year. Pray for you. Pray for our faculty, our administration. We're going to gather here to pray for something big, but we know that surrender comes first. If you ask people across the Christian faith where the something big happened, they will point to the cross. The cross is the headline. It's the world changer. It is the t-shirt worthy moment. But before the cross, there's always the garden. Welcome to Gethsemane. It's going to be big. Let's pray for it now. Let's pray together. Lord, we're not all in agony today, but we are all in earnest because we want to see you work. Lord, our world is hurting. People are dying. People are struggling. People are in storms. The world has not gotten better with each generation as we hoped it would. Lord, racism, hurt, abuse, hard things abound around this world, and we know that you weep for it. And we weep with you, Lord. God, train us up to do big things. Make disciples that are worthy to do big things in your world. But Lord, while they're gathered here, while we are gathered here, don't let us treat it like a holding pattern. Lord, don't let us treat seminary like the disciples treated the garden. Wake us up. Let us keep watch over our souls. Make us one with one another. Call us to something big on our knees 
before you call us to the world, God. Don't let us sleep through it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.